0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, I Am, examining the I Am statements of Jesus. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading comes from John 10, through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Peace be with you. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. My name is Drew Morgan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am honored, humbled that I get to bring the word this morning. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's blessing and grace. Gracious God, thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth together this morning. Your word is alive and active, and we count on it. So I pray, God, that as we dive into it, that you would edify your church and enrich our lives in you. That we would leave encouraged. Resting in the fact, Lord, that you are shepherd and knowing, Lord, that you care for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to tell you a hilarious and tragic story. William Hull was a politician and he was a a military leader in the War of 1812. And Hull uh, left for Detroit and they give him... 2,500 men along with children and women to go and establish this fort and to uh, pursue their mission, which was to take land north and to move into Canada. So, so they go, they establish themselves, they're doing well, the fort is established, and he gets his marching orders to start moving into Canada where the British soldiers are. They want to take land because land is valuable. They also want to recruit the British uh, villages and soldiers to abandon their, their um, affiliation with Britain, and they want to bring them over back uh, to join the rebel cause. And so uh, they march out, uh, and they immediately get hit with resistance, because obviously the British people want to stay British. And so they're moving there. They hit resistance, and not even a month later they turn around and they're heading back to Detroit. They have failed their mission and they, they were only gone a month. And for us, maybe a month seems kind of like a long time for, for one job, right? But it probably took them two weeks to get to where they were going, maybe a week of work, and then a week they were heading back. So they utterly failed and had an embarrassingly short stint in their initial, in their initial mission. But you don't get your story told 200 years later if your story gets better, right? So it gets worse for Hull. Only seven days after their return, the British soldiers essentially followed them home with their tail between their legs and said, I think, I think we can take those guys. So they, they come up. Isaac Brock is the leader of this group, and he writes a letter to Hull. And he essentially says, we have more men than you do. Surrender or we're coming up there. He had less than half of the men that Hull did. And so this is, this is a full-on bluff. Hull hits him back with a, sounds good, and the battle's over before it even begins. Here's the kicker. Not only was Hull an incompetent military leader and strategist, he also proves that his highest priority is his own well-being. In his surrender, Hull argue he wants two things in order to be surrendered. He wants, one, he wants to be treated as a guest of the crown rather than a prisoner of war. And two, he wants to have warm sleeping quarters. Okay, and the British are like, yeah, sure. So they take him over. Um, They are in captivity for about two years. Hull's kind of living it up while his men are prisoners of war. Unfortunately for Hull, the Americans did pretty well in the War of 1812, uh, and they captured them back. And so Hull and his men are then marched back to D.C. as, a, as a, almost a victorious. But I imagine the, the walk between Hull and his men was a pretty awkward 500-mile walk, right? So Hull proved himself to be a selfish leader. And this story doesn't have all that much to do with John chapter 10, except he proves he is self-seeking cowardly, and worst of all, he cares nothing for his flock. We're continuing to dive into the I am statements of Jesus. In our text this morning, Jesus proclaims himself to be the Good Shepherd. A theme that has been emerging in the series for me is that Jesus uh, is making proclamations of himself as the primary fulfillment for hum- every man's deepest need and our hearts deepest longings. Jesus is proclaiming himself as the satisfaction of for those things. And he is nothing like William Hole. Y'all pray the ghost of William Hole doesn't haunt me for roasting him in front of all y'all. You've probably experienced shepherds, like Jesus describes in the passage, as hired hands, right? These, these hired hands, are, they're self-seeking, they're unwilling to do what it takes to care for the flock, they're just, they're just there for the money, right? And whenever the risk comes up, the danger comes, they're out of there, right? They're like, not my sheep, not my problem. They're they're gone. Jesus is saying here, essentially, I am not like the hired hands. I am the true shepherd, and I am the true owner of this flock. In these sheep, their protection and their well-being are important to me. That is what Jesus wants us to take away from this. We'll talk more about what his shepherding is going to actually look like, but in order to grasp the grandioseness of his proclamation here is that we need to understand the context of what he is speaking to. Most of us have experienced the hurt and fallout of a selfish leader, right? Or someone that takes advantage of those under their leadership. It's hard to even describe just just how destructive of an experience that is of having a leader over you, exploit you. You're not able to see yourself clearly. You're not able to see God clearly. Right? That that is a destructive experience. And it's a challenge for every human being that's ever lived. And God knows this and sh- and, and Christ is, is coming on the scene as an answer, of fulfillment for those those hurts and those longings. In Ezekiel thirty-four, There's a prophecy about the shepherds of Israel. And I'd like to go there because God makes a, a pronouncement against the shepherds of Israel, and He makes a promise for the people of Israel that I think Jesus has in mind whenever He proclaims Himself as the good shepherd. Let's read this together. It says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord, Ah, shepherds of Israel. You have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. Right? So the pronouncement against Israel is that these these shepherds were in positions of authority, right? They, they were meant to lead the people in their relationship with God, to accomplish God's means. They have failed to care for the flock, which is certainly a fireable offense for a shepherd, right? They have utterly failed the people of God. And in turn, they have mirrored a God that doesn't care. There's a connection between the leader and the God that stands behind them. right? When leaders lead, when they lead harshly, when they rule over their people and exploit the people under them, it communicates something about the authority they serve. So it communicates that God is that same way. It communicates something untrue about God. And God won't stand for this. In verse 10, God says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I am opposed to the shepherds. We are not working towards the same things. God's in opposition to them. And that goes to show you just because someone is in a position of spiritual authority, it doesn't mean that God approves of them there. God is judge, and he judges with a righteous right hand. We're meant to discern all things by the truth of his word and the fruit of their work. So why is God opposed to this? Because it soils his name. God is not seen in the right way when the shepherds behave like devils. Israel had suffered under the leadership of bad shepherds for a long time. The time of, from the Exodus until Ezekiel 34 is well over a thousand years. And there's books of the Bible written about this. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Judges. All of these are highlighting the raised up leaders of Israel And there's a common writing device in all of those books. It says, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so became king, and he did what was evil in God's sight. This is a consistent, cyclical theme that Israel has experienced as oppressive leaders that have not lived up to God's standards. It puts a spotlight on man's deepest problems in the leaders, but it also stirs our affections for the coming solution. Right, It highlights that. Thousands of years, God is communicating a full story in Scripture that points out just how desperately we need a truly righteous leader. is able to lead us in righteousness and to redeem us. So the longing, the longing is deep here. God declared His opposition to Israel's leaders. In Ezekiel 34, He continues with these three passages where He, he makes His promise to His people. In verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. (coughs) Excuse me. Continues verse 15. I myself, again, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Last one, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. The Lord does not leave his people to suffer under evil leaders, but he steps up and says, I myself will shepherd the people. No one single human being is able to lead my people in the way that I call them to. So therefore, I will take the place of the shepherd. I will shepherd them. I will care for them. I will help them to pursue justice. I will bind them up whenever they're weak. I will encourage them whenever they're discouraged. So, in accordance with the prophecy of Ezekiel and the promise of God, Jesus steps onto the scene. And he says, I am that guy, right? I am the good shepherd. I alone am the good shepherd that is able to fully rule righteously, uphold justice, to lead them into the full of God. So, rather than leaving us where we are, God steps in where others have failed. I have two points that I want to highlight in this passage. The first is to talk about how does Jesus shepherd us? The second one is that the shepherd became the sacrificial lamb. Those are the two things I think Jesus speaks about in this passage. So the first says that he shepherds us. He shepherds us. How does he shepherd us? He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. Another they will not follow. They know my voice, and they follow me. So how do we discern the voice of Jesus versus my own voice, or the voice of people around me, the voices that, that, that speak to me? How do I discern what is from God and what is from myself? Well, we do that by knowing His Word. His Word corrects. His Word invites us to see Him rightly. Sometimes I get that confused and I see myself as projecting onto Jesus something that he is not. Have you ever, do you experience frequently maybe projecting to Jesus that he's, that he's constantly critiquing you? Is he constantly bringing accusations, reminding you of how you're not living up? Is he critical? Is he critical? Right, not, not only critical, but is he unhappy, perpetually unhappy with you? Friends, that is not the way Jesus is. Jesus is not overly critical. He's patient. He leads us patiently. right? Romans 5, his kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that draws us back to himself. He's kind with you. If you have a, a critical spirit, Put on the right voice of Jesus in your heart. Remind yourself that Jesus is patient with you. On the other hand, does the voice of Jesus ever correct or rebuke you? We might be tempted to be, have a voice of Jesus that is too affirming for us. Does he affirm us in our sin? Or when we do sin, does he say, that's sin, but I kind of understand why you did that. Right, a too-affirming spirit is also not the voice of Jesus. Sometimes the shepherd corrects and rebukes and draws back and invites us to repent, to turn from our sin. And Because Jesus, as the shepherd, takes serious our holiness. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be righteous. He takes sin seriously. So whatever the voice that you have in your heart of Jesus, the word corrects. So read his word, abide in his word, allow the word to minister to you that then you will be confident in how Jesus truly deals with you in reality. In reality, he's patient with you, but in reality, he won't allow you to stay where you are. It's his kindness, his patience, his love for us. Allow that to sink deep in your heart because we all all struggle with that. We know how Jesus is, but we envision him like us or like other leaders in our life. But Jesus is kind and patient with us, leading us in a gentle and lowly heart. Time in the Word helps us to know how he shepherds us in various situations. The way he handles the woman at the well Versus the way he handles the Pharisees are different. Right? The way he handles us in our sin versus whenever we are in despair are different. All of them are kind. All of them are love. Second way that Jesus shepherds us is that he protects us against danger. Right in the parable that Jesus is talking about, he talks about the wolves that come and scatter. Or like Pastor Jason last week preached, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? These wolves are coming, and they're dangerous. The selfish leaders do not meet that need, but Jesus does. Right? For example, Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. That's right. He does not flee in the face of trouble, but seeks to meet it. There's danger in our sin, but these wolves, I think, represent false teachers, false messages, false gospels, right? They're coming to scatter the sheep. They're trying to undo what God has done, right? God has gathered the flock. He's caring. He's protecting. But these wolves are trying to unsurp that. So they're false teachers. They're trying to, to invite us to see something other than Jesus as being worthwhile, but Christ is our shepherd. He does not leave us in that. But with every false message, every false teacher presents what I would call a false refuge. Right? Christ is our refuge and strength. A false message presents a false refuge. Wolves love when pigs make their houses out of sticks and straw, right? These false refuges are what we we think we will find safety and security in them. We think that they protect. We think that they answer our deepest needs, but they're false. They're made, they're made of straw. In Isaiah 30, God, God corrects Israel again in this. He said, "'Ah, stubborn children,' declares the Lord, "'who carry out a plan but not mine, "'who make an alliance but not of my spirit, "'that they may add sin to sin, "'who set out to go down to Egypt "'without asking for my direction.'" to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Right? Egypt is opposed to the things of Israel. Right? But when Israel comes under attack, Israel's tempted to go, to go to Egypt for protection, for guidance. And they do so without, without consulting God and without faith or trust that God will protect them. Right? So it's a false refuge. It is not safe like the presence of and shepherding of Jesus is. What are the false refuges that continue to pop up in your life? Because when anxiety hits, when danger comes, when questions come, we, we try to find places of refuge to deal with that. These can, be, these can be bad things. These can also be good things. Of places that we think will satisfy, we think that they will help us. But they're actually taking the place of where Jesus is meant to provide. Jesus provides our true refuge, and whenever we go to something else, we're forfeiting Christ's protection in that, and we get hurt. So what is a false refuge that you frequently run to? For me, I found refuge in substances for a long time, in which I felt the burdens of the world in insecurity, right, in anxiety, in boredom. I wanted to find freedom and refuge from those things. And I had something that I thought fixed it. But God did not leave me in that, but he corrected me, right? He allowed me to see that these things ultimately will collapse upon me. But that Christ is the mighty fortress. He does not collapse, he does not leave me in that. He's safe and secure. And so, as He rebuked and corrected, I found what I was looking for. I invite you all to experience that. The true refuge is only found in Christ, everything else is sinking sand, right? Begin to cast off these false refuges with a, a simple confession. Right, it takes time to put on Christ. It takes time to put on a refuge, but make a confession that I will no longer seek what these false refuges promise from it, but I'll go to the source. I'm going to go to Christ for my safety and security. Only Christ frees me from myself. Go to the true refuge. He's safe and secure. He does not flee when danger comes like everything else. The Lord meets us in that. He's true security. Now, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus is making no small statement about himself, right? He's making a massive one. He is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. He's the one true king and shepherd of Israel. And the Jews that Jesus is speaking to know the promises of God. They know the Old Testament They know God has promised a redeemer, a coming shepherd, right? The one that comes from the lineage of David. They know this is coming. They want this leader to come. They want to uh, bring back purity to the Jewish way of life. They want to reestablish their borders. They want to bring prosperity to their theocratic country. But Jesus is the good shepherd and he's doing a new thing. Or they had reason to believe that, right? Like, I mean, God had given them the land of Israel out of Exodus, He had raised up leaders to go on conquest. They were exiled from that land, but God promised to bring them back. He did. So they had reason to think, right, that this this is the way God is going to redeem us. But Jesus is doing a new thing. He's saying, I am the good shepherd, and we have to heed his his word here. And what he does as the good shepherd is he looks past these initial desires, and he goes to the heart of their biggest need. Right? They think they need a nation. They think they need a land. But Jesus says the good shepherd recognizes that their biggest, most important need is an answer for their sin. They don't just need a leader. They, they need a savior, is what he's saying. You don't just need someone to lead you in the right way. You need someone to step in your place and die for you. So he knows that. He knows They're longing for this, but there's something beyond it. So Christ, as the Good Shepherd, knows this. There are good desires to long for leaders, mentors, emotional, spiritual support. Those are essential to the Christian life. They're not bad. But if we think that it's only that, we'll miss Christ's primary message, which is we need our sins forgiven and we need to be brought to spiritual life. Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, moves into that space that they're not looking for, but promises to provide. God provides the answer to our deepest need through the righteous ruler, which is the second point. The shepherd became the sacrificial lamb. The leader that Israel needed became the sacrificial lamb. Good shepherd, right? Let's go back to these verses 14 through 19, reorient ourselves with what he's saying here. He says, I am the good shepherd, And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So the shepherd, the king, became the sacrificial lamb for us. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the deepest need of every human being. Is that the wages of our sin require a death. Right, it is what we are owed. It is what we have earned with our sin. God is right in pronouncing death death to us in our sin. This is a wage. It's it's something you earn. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. A free gift is different than a wage. Right? A gift you receive. A wage you earn. So Christ is something that we receive in the place of our highest need. Our biggest need is to be right with God. Our biggest need is to be cleansed from our sin and to have a righteousness put on us that's not ours. Christ fulfills that. Our good shepherd, he sees that and he meets it by dying a death on a cross that we deserved. We earned it, but he accomplished it. Eternal life in Christ. And this was done by the shepherd who have every right to rule over us, tows himself to make himself low that he might bring us up. Christ did that. So all who have faith in Christ and his work, are completely freed from the judgment against sin. Completely freed. This is the good news of the gospel. And our spiritual lives thrive based on how much we contemplate this and love this. Right? The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life, not the ABCs. And so whenever we have the A to Zs working out, God redeems us and grows us in it. That the cross becomes more important to us, not less, as we grow. Right? Is the cross getting bigger in your heart? Do you see your desperate need for it more than when you first came to him? If not, that's not an uncommon experience. But I would say, remind yourself of where you were and where you would be without him. And just how much he has richly provided in the cross desperately need him as we need him more and depend on him more we find more grace so if your if your life if your spiritual life is stunted if you feel like you're not growing that's a common experience i think everybody in here can empathize with that we all know what it's like to feel stagnant in our faith but god invites us to again to go back to the a A disease re-experience just just how serious our sin was and how much god provided for it in him So it's the gospel that we meditate on, that we feed on, that we meditate deep in our hearts, that corrects and rebukes and invites us to grow. So it's this good news that we have. Jesus also said of his death, right, that he has the authority to lay it down of his own accord and the authority to take it up again. So he's explaining his coming resurrection here. So where his death is, freed us from the penalty of our sin and what we owed. It's His resurrection that gives us the victory, right? So He answers for our sin in His death, but the victory is where he overcomes sin and death and the devil, and He takes us to God in that. So it's the resurrection in which we're bound to Him and experience that eternal life. We needed a death of a Savior in our place, but then we needed a resurrection to live eternally. So Christ gave us that, and no sin Ours or anyone else, no brokenness, no accusers will steal us from that victory. If we're bound to him, we will experience his eternal life. When I say bound, what I mean is the reality of being united with Jesus, united with Christ. Right? We're united in him in that it's an intimate relationship is the first step. When we have faith in Jesus, we're bound to him with an, an unseparable relationship, that faith puts us in Him. Right? Imagine the, the cleft of the rock in which God put Moses, and he saw God's backside walk by. Christ is that rock. We're, we're in Him. And that, that rock is secure. That when we're in it, we're able to see God and not die. We're able to experience God in His fullness because of our freedom in Him. So we're united in Him. So the first part of being united with Christ is that intimate relationship. The second is that we participate in Him. We participate in His unfolding kingdom and plan, right? So if we're united with Jesus, Jesus isn't done yet, right? People are coming to faith. People are being brought into the flock of God. We participate in that as we're united in Him, we're not swept up into heaven whenever we come to faith, right? We continue to be on mission, we invest in the people around us, we share the good news, and we continue to worship as a beacon to a world that needs to see it, right? So we, in our union with God, we participate in Him, and that's why we're active Christians. Church, as we pursue God's mission, we do so because we are attached to Him, and He is unfolding a plan, and we participate in that. Third thing, our location changes when we're united with Christ. Our location changes. Prior to being united with Christ, we are in the kingdom of darkness under the oppressive rulership of the devil and his schemes. That's a reality that we often forget, that there are two kingdoms at play in the world. Prior to being united with Christ, we are under that kingdom, that oppression, But when we're united with Christ, we're brought out of that into the kingdom of light, right? Our location changes. We're we're in the kingdom of light. We're united with Christ, and we're freed from that oppressive rulership. So our location changes with that. Last thing is our body life, right? We're united to a body. We're not united just us in Jesus, but our union with Jesus also includes all other believers, and so Midtown is a, a local expression of that reality. A local expression of Christ's body is here at Midtown and that we worship and we, we go on mission and we serve Shelby Park and we give our finances all for the sake of doing life together. We're participating, but we do so in body life. And what a beautiful picture it is to see everyone here knowing that we are united with Christ together. And so when we corporately worship, we do so as brothers and sisters, right? That's how we see ourselves as one, right? We're one in Christ, one body, one flock, one shepherd. We'll say when it comes to shepherding, is that shepherds are meant to mirror God, right? And at Sojourn, we we long for our pastors, our leaders. We are under shepherds, under his primary shepherding. Christ is the head of the church, the true shepherd. Everything that we do is under His lordship and leadership. And so we long that we would be godly in that. And that we would follow after Him. Right? That we wouldn't go somewhere without His direction. But that we would do so from a heart of wanting to follow where He is leading us. So we're united with Christ. Greg Beal said this quote, All that happens to Christ in His resurrection and ascension will happen to us. I read that, and I needed to take a nap and then think on it for a minute. Because imagine that all that happened to Christ will happen to us in our ascension. Christ ascended, and he went into the heavens and is seated next to the Father. Like, resting, seated next to the Father. And if we're united with Jesus, he's taking us with him. So we, are, have, we have full access to God in Jesus, That is the most groundbreaking, life-changing reality. And Jesus, he he resurrected from the dead. It's different than Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he was the most unlucky man in the world because he died twice, right? (laughs) Jesus is eternally alive. Not like Lazarus, but he permanently. And so whenever we're united to him after our death, we will be eternally alive with him, never to die again. So all that Jesus has accomplished in that, is applied to us, and it's because He is our good shepherd, and we're in His flock, and He cares for us, and He will bring us into prosperity. What Jesus speaks about twice in this passage—the first one was the um, the benefits of His death and resurrection. The second thing that He talks about twice is His relationship with the Father. He says two things. He says, I know my own and my own know me, just as I know the Father and the Father knows me. Later, he says this, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So, Jesus is claiming an extraordinary relationship with God that is not normative to hear, right? He's claiming I have a father-son relationship with God. He also has a plan, and I'm an essential in a, I'm a central part of it. Or that's not a normal thing to say. That's, that's an outlandish claim, right? But Jesus grounds his relationship with the Father in his resurrection. Right? See what he said? For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, the charge I received from my Father. So him dying and being raised from the dead is a charge he received from The Father. So he's saying, My outlandish claims will be proven in my resurrection. Though we're not meant to just take them at face value, but he proved he is who he said he was. He's willing to put it all on the line. If I'm not raised from the dead, I'm not one with the Father. But he is one with the Father, and so he was raised. He did receive this charge, this authority from the Father. And so when he is raised, he is apologetically saying, I am the Good Shepherd. And so that is something that we must wrestle with. We have to wrestle with that reality because what Jesus is saying, we can't just allow him to say, I am one with the Father, but just be a simple moral teacher. Right? You can't just be a moral teacher and say something beautiful and true, like love your neighbor as yourself, and also claim to be one with the Father and say that's a completely sane person. Right? And what he's saying is, it's two things we have to wrestle with and we can't separate them. Jesus is saying, I am one with the Father, and I have true ethics and true morality. So we have to wrestle with this. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis says that there's three options of dealing with Jesus, Jesus' claims here. The first one is that he's a liar, that Jesus is claiming to be one with God, he's claiming to be his son, he's claiming to be the good shepherd. But those don't, if those don't have any basis in reality, then he's lying. And if that, that goes without saying, but we shouldn't believe him, right? or he's a lunatic. He truly might believe these things about himself. He might believe that he is in right relationship with God. He might believe that he's the savior of the world. But again, if those don't have any basis in reality, he's not to be believed. He's not the way of salvation. But the third option is that he's telling the truth and that he's Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. I think those are the three options we have with Jesus. I don't think we can just say he's a good teacher and not say he's the savior of the world. So he has the authority to lay it down. It comes from the Father, and he proves who he is. He proves his relationship with God and his resurrection. Have you, rest, has, have you wrestled with that reality of Jesus' claims? Have you proclaimed him as Lord? If you have not proclaimed him as Lord, we invite you to wrestle with his, with his testimony. We would love to talk with you about this to help you to see how Scripture is corroborated and true that the testimony of how one can be right with God in the Scriptures is true. We would love to talk with you about that. If you have proclaimed Him as Lord, then what we do is we enjoy Him. We often don't speak of God as being enjoyed. That whenever we, when we are in His presence, that it brings happiness and rejoicing, that there's safety and security in Him. He is meant to be enjoyed. He brings joy And that's where I think our relationship with God thrives is we see him as satisfying and then we satisfy ourselves with him. That's how we grow in our relationship with God. That's how we enjoy God as he's meant to be enjoyed. I'll summarize with this. Christ is nothing like William Hull. Whereas William Hull fled in the face of danger, led his people the dust, prisoner of war, just to abandon them and to seek safety for his own skin. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is with you and he loves you. He comforts you. Right where his whole comforted himself, Christ became uncomfortable to comfort us. Christ is our good shepherd and he's worth trusting and worth following. Let's pray.